Hi, I'm Stephen Webb, host of Touring Heaven, your tour guide and traveling companion. And I'd like to invite you to come with me on a tour of heaven. This tour begins what you might think of as a new level in an upward spiral, increasing our understanding of what makes heaven different from our physical level of earth. In our first 12 tours, you learned a lot about the etheric levels of our planet. In our next series of visits to the Masters in Heaven, there's more to think about, more responsibility for being privately interactive with the Holy Spirit during your waking hours. Your private prayers to God can also be made in the form of questions, asking for clarification about the existence and accessibility of heaven. Ask and you shall receive. There's so much to tell you about the Master we're going to visit soon in our etheric bodies. He's the most buoyant, energetic and enthusiastic champion of your soul and I hope you're going to remember his name with a sense that this is my friend, my dear friend, who before his ascension was influential in history in many lifetimes. So that means he's often been famous, known by names you'll recognize. But in heaven now, his name is Lanello. Very few of us equate that name with the continuity of the amazing physical lives within his life stream. I'll explain how he got the name Lanello in a few minutes. You're going to be invited to meet an immortal, an ascended master, who, as you'll hear, was mortal as often as you've been, made mistakes even bigger than yours, affecting many people's lives positively and negatively, and yet by the grace of God has paid 100% of his debts to life and karmically no longer needs to reincarnate on our physical level. The point is, if he can repay his karmic debts in full, you can too. Lanello's retreat in heaven is in one of the etheric octaves in the same location we know in our physical world as Bingen on the Rhine, at the confluence of the Rhine and Naha rivers in Germany. Remember when we went to visit Quan Yin in the etheric hills north of Beijing, and I said, this is going to be an eye-opener about what sacred China was and is meant to offer the world. The point there was to contrast the materialist, authoritarian, surveillance state of physical China with the etheric reality of the grace, beauty, and true essence of China. In the same vein, this visit is going to introduce you to the concept of what sacred Germany is meant to offer the world. We've seen the dark side co-opt the light bearers of Germany into centuries of civil wars and two world wars in which tens of millions of German people were among the victims. There is a divine purpose for the people of light in Germany as a true and holy aspiration. God's vision of the physical, rising to the level of the etheric, will become reality. To gradually accomplish this, the qualities of heaven have to be imported through us reverently into our behavior, devotion, and service. But just to give you a hint of where we're going with the concepts of sacred China or sacred Germany, 
Remember that Lanello and his twin flame were and are advanced souls of great attainment who chose and were chosen to be among the rescuers, the 144,000 volunteers from etheric Venus at a time when Earth was entirely in spiritual darkness. There was no Germany, no China then. It was a fallen civilization, descended to caveman level, planet-wide. Into this came the white light of the rescuers. White light is made up of a range of the different frequencies of the rainbow rays. In mankind, these frequencies can manifest as a range of tribes and then nations with different characteristics. Consider that nation-states are temporary karmic groups that are part of the process of restoring civilization to what God originally intended Earth to be, a holy schoolroom. But before we get on our way, if you haven't heard the introduction episode of Touring Heaven, now might be a good time to skip back there for an orientation so you understand how we each get to visit Heaven in our etheric body. Our preparation always begins with prayer to the holy angels, to Jesus, Archangel Michael, the I Am that I Am, for uninterrupted, safe passage in our etheric or soul memory body to our destination and back to our sleeping, mental, emotional, and physical bodies at home. As we drift off to sleep, comfy in bed, the holy angels gather around each of us and escort us in our etheric bodies from anywhere across this planet to the University of the Spirit or the Master's Retreat where the free tuition our soul needs is always available. Our etheric or memory body is the same vehicle that carries our soul to these retreats at the end of each lifetime, so we're no strangers to heavenly travel. It's just that you now know that you don't need to wait until the end of this life. You can safely travel to heaven while you sleep. We are made so beautifully by God that our etheric body is of the same sacred fire substance as the angels, so there's no problem holding etheric hands with an angel. And with that thought, we're up and away from our sleeping body and on across oceans and continents at the speed of thought. And there, below us through layers of clouds, are the rich green forests and meadows of a part of heaven we think of in our physical world as Germany. One of the major differences, though, between our level and the etheric octaves is that in heaven, there are no separate nations or separate religions or barriers to brotherhood. At a lower altitude, we can see Lanello's retreat. It's a large classical mansion on a series of luminous garden terraces on high ground overlooking the Naha River and a major bend in the much larger Rhine River. In heaven, colors of the trees and flowers are iridescent, so much more vibrant than in our world because the oscillation of the electrons at the subatomic level is closer to the speed of light. Our physical eyes are designed by God to only see the visible spectrum, red to violet. But well beyond violet, our etheric sight is attuned to a far higher frequency, perfectly able to see angels and masters and their retreats. 
Some distance from the elegant lines of the mansion, there's a series of interconnected gardens, playground of fountains, lawns designed as outdoor art, and dazzling floral displays all overlooking the intersection of the rivers below. There's a sense of contentment here. We can feel it as we land on one of the bright green lawns and stroll toward the garden wall to see the panoramic view from the highest terrace. There's a clean fragrance of pine in the air, and the feeling of contentment is like a soft hum radiating from the retreat in heaven to the town in the physical. Bingen on the Rhine is unlike any town in Germany because of that soft, harmonious, inaudible hum, like a continuous to the soul. And leaning on the garden wall, listening to the bluebirds, there's a crystal clear view of the gardens and the forests and the rivers. And there's that feeling of freedom away from the weight of earning a living and the endless complications of the world we just temporarily left. But the soul of the ascended Master Lanello is oh so familiar with the stresses of our warring world, probably more so, as you'll hear in a few minutes. We have the relative peace of being mostly unknown. The soul of Lanello had anything but in his lives among us. When I describe the lifetimes Lanello experienced in our physical world, you might wonder how a soul who was so influential so often would not have ascended to heaven as a saint thousands of years ago. But these are just the lives we know about for teaching purposes. In his final lifetime, during the 20th century, Lanello was born with what he described as a heavy karmic burden, despite all his important embodiments and great deeds. Everyone's karma is unique, based on millions of free will choices, aligned with God's laws or against, over the soul's many physical lifetimes of testing. The lady ascended master who helped Lanello the most to balance his layers of negative karma was Mary. Jesus' mother, who has ample capacity for being your spiritual mother too, no matter what karma you carry in this life. It might be no surprise that Lanello and his twin flame, who we'll learn about later, were among the 144,000 volunteers who came with Sanakamara to turn civilization around, far back in prehistory. No one then on earth had any interest in the path towards Christhood. The reason? There were embodied fallen angels of great attainment confined on earth from among the one-third of heaven who had rebelled against God's plan for all of cosmos. Earth became the crossroads, ground zero, in a spiritual and physical contest between good and evil that has lasted eons. Lanello was in the light at the center of the ancient and current war between the light and the darkness. There are 18 lives of Lanello I'd like to tell you about while we look out over the forests and the rivers. It's good background to know how a soul becomes an ascended master over thousands of years, and so that when you meet him, you can relate that it wasn't easy. 
but that you see a pattern where God always had an evolving plan for that soul. You may never have had even one historically famous embodiment, possibly because you had no karmic need to. Count your blessings. If you have king karma because of great errors you were and still are responsible for, where your actions affected one or more nations, you need to be born to become a king or a national leader again and pray you can correct the errors in a similar karmic setting and not be sabotaged or compound the situation yourself in the next life. To begin, while we lean here against the wall in the sunshine, let your mind's eye meditate on ancient days. We don't know about any of Lanello's lifetimes on the sunken continent of Lemuria, but we do know a little about two lives on Atlantis. One was as a prominent priest, a master of invocation of the light, in the Temple of the Logos in the capital, Kaiful. The second was in the last years of Atlantis, as the unpopular, politically incorrect prophet Noah. During Atlantean times, the crystal cord or tube of light between our God presence and our soul was up to nine feet wide, and so people lived much longer. Noah was among the very few who had not rebelled against God during those corrupt times. And when he received the prophecy of the coming flood, the final sinking of what was left of the continent of Atlantis, Noah endured a hundred years of public mockery, character assassination, before the purpose of the ark was realized. After the fall of Atlantis, the crystal cord of light between us and God was greatly reduced for everyone, so that the misuse of God's energy would not result in yet another round of karma-driven cataclysm. Lanello's next known embodiment was in ancient Palestine as Lot, the nephew of the patriarch Abraham. Think about Lot's life as an analogy for everyone, getting out of the fallen angels' decadent cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by divine intervention, and for his long-term soul relationship with his spiritual teacher, El Moria, who was embodied as Abraham. Then came that prominent life of mostly good karma. Around 1300 BC, Lanello embodied in ancient Egypt as the pharaoh Ikhnaten, also known as Amenhotep III. His queen was Nefertiti, his twin flame. Ikhnaten broke away from the doctrines of the polytheistic fallen priests of Egypt and built a new palace and capital city at Amarna, far away from the dark priest's influence. He became the first monotheistic ruler in history, worshipping the one God who he depicted in drawings as a sun, extending the divine presence to man as rays of spiritual sunlight. Ignaton and his queen were murdered by an army general on behalf of the priests, who ensured the succeeding pharaohs returned to earthbound animalistic worship. But Ignatan's effort to represent God as the one divine presence was not lost on heaven. After that life, the soul of Lanello and his twin flame were granted an etheric palace, a sanctuary in heaven where the fallen ones couldn't find them. It was at that time, around 1300 BC, that the retreat 
in the etheric, vibrating much higher than the forests around the physical area of Bingen, was established in heaven by God, as a continuation of the divine sponsorship that had supported their rule in Egypt. There was no Germany at that time in the physical, only continuous forest and small clans of hunter-gatherers. But in ancient Egypt, there were many thousands of people of light who had supported Ignatan and Nefertiti. Where did they go when the dark priests retook Egypt? There has been a special relationship in the light radiating around Bingen since then for those who could recognize it. Many of the light bearers of ancient Egypt have reincarnated again and again in the nation of Germany in this and in previous lives. The details of Lanello's next known life are unclear, as descriptions of his life and works as the Greek fable teller Aesop came from oral traditions. It's likely he was from a Greek island and lived around 620 BC to 560 BC. But more importantly, his cautionary tales using animal characters tapped into such a wellspring of timeless wisdom that his stories have inspired embellishments and variants for more than 2,500 years. We'll also see soon how Aesop's canny insight into human nature became stored wisdom that he built on in future lives. How did he create these amazing morality tales to teach people about inordinate desires and their consequences when everyone knows that animals can't talk? Remember, Lanello was, like the other rescuers, chosen for his great attainment and compassion for humanity. But, like Ignatan, Aesop too was murdered, quite possibly for his observations about human nature that were a little too close to the bone. The next life we know about began about 500 years later. Lanello's soul was born in Roman Palestine and grew up to become Mark the Evangelist, a young contemporary of Jesus. His mother was a devoted disciple of Jesus, and as a boy, he witnessed the Last Supper. Mark was raised as an Essene. He was well-educated, well-spoken, and he was chosen to be the Apostle Peter's scribe. He also assisted the Apostle Paul in Antioch. His attunement with the upper room or non-public teachings of Jesus gave him a profound understanding of God's new dispensation of forgiveness by grace as distinct from the Mosaic law of an eye for an eye. Mark the Apostle founded the first Christian church in Alexandria, Egypt, and again, like Ignatan and Aesop, Mark was murdered. About a hundred years later, the soul of Lanello reincarnated in Alexandria, Egypt, near the scene of the crime, and he became the prolific Christian scholar and theologian Origen. Picking up from where he left off as Mark, Origen produced more than 2,000 scrolls on Christian spirituality and has been described as the greatest genius the early church ever produced. Origen founded a Christian school in Caesarea, Palestine, and he was widely regarded as the primary theological authority by the churches in Palestine and Arabia. And then in the year 250, Origen was arrested during Roman Emperor Decius's persecution of Christians. You guessed it. Origen was tortured repeatedly by Roman agents, 
and died three or four years later from the lasting effects of his injuries. Okay, looking at your expressions, let's just take a break from these horrible life endings for a while and head on down through the gardens toward the smaller river so we can see a bit more of the retreat. Down there through the pink and white flowering trees, I can see swans on a pond and azaleas, and I think I see roses around the banks. We're kind of spoilt for choice with all these pathways, but this one looks like it'll get us there. Oh, this is beautiful by the pond. Take a seat on one of these big benches. The swans, as you can see, are very friendly. Look at them. They know they're beautiful. So regal, the way they turn, and, and you can tell they're happy we're here. See? You can pet them. And then they're off, showing you how fast they can swim. They're like children. Now, look up at the dozens of tiny white lights around the pink flowers on the trees at the other end of the pond. Look at the glow in the sky behind the flowers. In this case, they're not elementals, and they aren't exactly like the blue angels who brought us here. They're seraphim, waiting to see if you'll notice them. They're a special kind of angel, totally devoted to you. Because you're in your etheric body, you can see them. Their specialty relates to the divine quality of purity. They can change size in an instant from as large as a city to as small as an electron, and they can go through any substance or energy between the electrons and along the wavelengths in your memory. And like all of the angelic kingdom, they can only act if you ask for their help. If you pray for purity to increase in yourself, they can adapt just like microscopic laser beams of etheric purity. They burn through the electronic records of impurity in you. Just the records you're most ready to let go of. Do this every day and you're less and less human and more and more divine. The purity of God created you and you can gradually return to the divine intent of what you were meant to be. There are lots of prayers to make the quality of purity yours. You can invite the seraphim to purify the records you too may have in hidden memories of traumatic events from lifetimes ago. Even if you don't consciously remember those lifetimes, the memories can still resonate and affect you in this life. Now here's a portion of a prayer you can say in heaven and even when you're awake in the physical world. When I say, I am, all caps, this is the name of God, I am that I am. It was given to Moses and spoken by Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In that holy context, I am purity means God in me is purity. Here's an example right here by the pond. In the name I am that I am, in the name of my holy Christ self, I call to the seraphim of God. Open the door to purity. Open the door to purity. Let the breezes blow and trumpet purity over the sea and over the land. Let men understand the voice of cosmic Christ's command. I come to open wide the way that men without fear may ever say, I am the purity of God. 
I am the purity of love. I am the purity of joy. I am the purity of grace. I am the purity of hope. I am the purity of faith and all that God can make of joy and grace combined. Lord, I am worthy of your purity. I accept this made manifest right here and now according to the will of God. Amen. And that's the permission the seraphim needed. Seraphim have the mind of God and go straight through those old memories, baggage we don't need or want anymore. And what's so amazing is that they leave a trail of purity inside whatever they pass through. So for about 24 hours, you have this residue of purity in your memory or your emotions. Enlightened self-interest would suggest you pray for purity every 24 hours. Makes sense here in the etheric. No guarantee you'll remember in the morning unless you ask for a reminder. So, while we're here with the swans, let's pick up where we left off talking about Lanello's live stream. And then, in a few minutes, we'll head down to the banks of the etheric Rhine. Now, last time, we were at around the year 250, the end of the life of Origen, the great Christian writer and theologian, an exponent of how God's mercy and opportunity works through the justice of reincarnation. The Roman Emperor Decius didn't want any of that reasoning, mercy, or purity in his empire. So Lanello's soul rested and studied here in heaven and at the retreats of his sponsoring masters after his life as Origen. From the etheric retreats, the masters pointed out that the time of Decius and all of the Roman Empire in the physical world would come to an end, and a great opportunity would be made available to the people to avoid chaos and anarchy as the empire fell. And being a team player among the ancient rescuers, the soul of Lanello re-embodied to meet the need of the times in the physical about 150 years after Origen's passing. In Roman Gaul, around the late 300s, to be tested as the historical knight, Lancelot. Like Aesop, Lancelot's actual life story was embellished many times over by fiction writers centuries later. But what we know is, Lancelot was born into uncertain times during the closing decades of the Roman Empire. He left decadent Gaul and crossed the channel to serve the historical King Arthur after the Roman legions had been reassigned from Britain to defend Gaul against the invading Huns in 410. To the west in Britain, King Arthur and Merlin's vision was to preserve the platform of the best of Romano-British civilization against neighboring warlords and Saxon invaders, preventing a freefall into anarchy. This platform was about more than chivalry and good order. It was an esoteric, mystical Christianity, represented by the search of the spiritual nobility for the Holy Grail. The Grail itself was not a physical cup, but a symbol for the etheric presence of God hidden within man. So the search was not out there, but discovery within of a secret non-physical chamber of God behind the physical heart. 
The grail quest was to discover by the Holy Spirit that God's presence of purity, love, wisdom, and power was latent within the knights and ladies. But latent wasn't enough. The presence of God had to be activated through the golden rule, the obligation of nobility for the stabilization of civilization. The plan of the round table at Camelot could have worked. Arthur had the most powerful military in post-Roman Britain at the time. But King Arthur was Lancelot's spiritual mentor, Elmoria, who had been Abraham. And as a test, Arthur's queen, Guinevere, was Lancelot's twin flame. Remember Nefertiti? And while Lancelot married another lady and passed the difficult test of honor, the spiritual unity of Camelot was deliberately undermined by the secretive courtiers Modred and Morgana Le Fay through a campaign of malicious gossip. They were envious of the light of the rescuers and they became mockers and tools of division. So what Camelot could have been as a bulwark of civilization against a long dark age for the people of Britain failed when the knights were turned against each other in opposing factions. It's interesting sitting here to get a sense of what's between the lines of Lanello's known embodiments. In every lifetime, there's a consistency in the quality of selflessness, noblesse oblige, always concerned with providing either profound understanding for others or a platform of law, order, and culture so that the mysteries of God could be discovered and the abundant life made real. And these noble intentions showed up within Lanello's next life soon after, as King Clovis from 466 to 511, the first king of what would become post-Roman France. The power vacuum that followed the Roman exit from Britain was also felt in Gaul, when the understrength Roman legions needed to ally with the Franks from the north to defeat Attila the Hun. Clovis' father was a minor king of the Salian Franks who allied with the Romans. The Franks had a settlement treaty with the Romans along the Lower Rhine, which is now Holland and Western Germany, including Bingen. Clovis became king at the age of 15 and spent his whole life as an exceptional warrior, defeating rival Gallic Romano kings until his expanding kingdom somewhat resembled current France. He married his twin flame again, the Burgundian princess Clotilde, who persuaded him to convert to Catholicism. Most of King Clovis' kingdom also converted, and so the power vacuum of Roman decline into anarchy was averted under the expansion of the Franks. This was a vital achievement for the preservation of civilization and for the beginning of the French nation. But the life of a warrior king is rarely without substantial negative karma, and Clovis' life was one of non-stop wars of conquest. And then came the plan for royal succession. After his death, King Clovis' four rivalrous sons did not succeed him and Queen Clotilde in a constructive way for the unity of France. Instead of taking the opportunity to improve the platform of a newly stable civilization, they formed four separate kingdoms. So, unfinished business in France. 
you might have taken note by the dates that there was very little time between the life of Lancelot and Clovis. It's often a hallmark of an advanced soul who can leave one intense life and enter another challenging life without a long period of review and soul preparation. The plan was already in place to test and refine a different area of Lanello's maturing soul. This was the case with Lanello's next life, blending his attainment in spiritual insight and physical discipline with that of an exceptional teacher, warrior, and fearless traveler. So, look up at the light of the sun through the leaves of the trees and contemplate the intense determination and vision in two lifetimes, Lancelot and Clovis, to prevent anarchy and division. These were two among many lifelong attempts to bring holy order. In each lifetime, there was little comfortability or even completion. The intent was to preserve civilization so that God could prosper through his grail presence within his people. And when the plan went awry in both lives through sabotage, the ingenuity of the mind of God had to come up with another plan to unfold in the next life. Consider how agile, fearless, and far-seeing the mind of God is to confidently send his servant sons and daughters into a completely different culture, language, and need for civilization building. Consider the soul of Lanello saying, Yes, I can do that for humanity. Can do. No one can say for certain when Bodhidharma was born. Contemporary and later accounts describe him with awe as if he'd been semi-legendary. Bodhidharma was real. It's likely that he was born into an upper-class Hindu family in southern India, possibly around 520, converted to Buddhism and then traveled by sea to China as a monk, where he attracted disciples and he became a great spiritual teacher. Bodhidharma is credited with the transfer of Buddhism from India to China, becoming its first organizer and authority figure. The spiritual warrior side of Bodhidharma appeared through records of his training the monks at the Buddhist Shaolin Monastery in martial arts. Bodhidharma was the originator of the philosophy and mastery of Kung Fu for self-defense. But this humble, intricate philosophy tied to Buddhism was likely the fruit of many previous lives of learning and experimentation. There are uncounted lives of Lanello that we don't know about, going back into the prehistory of China, India, Atlantis, Lemuria, and Venus. While you're thinking about that, let's stretch and stroll on through the gardens that way toward the big river. Hmm, <laughs> notice that? One moment, the fragrance we pass through is gardenias. The next, that's citrus and different kinds of roses. I think that's frangipani. And then that one, I can't describe except heavenly. So try to appreciate this luminous, aromatic flora, and let's think as we walk. Here, let's go this way between the trees to look out over the river. Looking down from these high banks, the great etheric river looks like 
flowing liquid gold. That's because even the grains of sediment in suspension in the water are comprised of molecules, comprised of atoms, where the electrons within the atoms rotate around the nucleus near the speed of light. So much light is emitted at this subatomic level that everything glows in the river, even sediment. In the physical Rhine, the sediment makes the water look like shades of brown, but here in heaven it's like watching millions of gallons of iridescent gold go by in the sunlight. It's just dazzling. We can just stand here for a while and watch the gold go by and think about when next in Lanello's live stream we go. There's already so much to contemplate about the range of attainment of the soul of Lanello. In the upcoming life, look for the appreciation of art and fine culture, spiritual insight, the responsibility taken to carefully weigh mercy and judgment, leadership by active example, and once more, the warrior king. He reincarnated almost 600 years after his life as the Buddhist master Bodhidharma into a noble Sunni Muslim Kurd family in 1137. He was well educated in academics and religion, but in his mid-twenties he was drawn into military service against opposing Muslim leaders as well as the Crusaders. He became known as Saladin, founder of the Ayyubid dynasty, the first sultan of Egypt, Syria, of what is now Iraq, much of Arabia and North Africa. Saladin survived multiple assassination attempts, and united the Shia and Sunni factions of his people, an amazing feat in itself. His Ayyubid army defeated the parched crusaders in the desert near Hattin, captured Jerusalem and returned much of Palestine to Muslim control in 1187. Saladin's treaty with Richard the Lionheart in 1192 ended the Third Crusade. And then Saladin died in Damascus in 1193 at age 56, after giving away most of his personal belongings. Regardless of culture, religion, birthplace, or wealth, the goal was the preservation and enrichment of civilization through noblesse oblige. And then the soul of Lanello made another change, away from the testing of duty and mercy during times of war, perhaps looking for ways to reach and teach the practice of the inner grail to the most people he could, pivoting from a devout knowledge of Islam to the most intense investigation of faith and reason within Christianity, he entered our octave again just 28 years after Saladin's death, born in Italy in 1221 as Giovanni di Fidanza. At about age four, he nearly died, but his mother petitioned St. Francis and asked him to pray for the boy in person, and Giovanni recovered. During the prayer over the dying boy, St. Francis spontaneously cried out, Oh, good fortune, or Bonaventura. This healing intercession set the course of that life, and as a young man, Giovanni, adopted Bonaventura as his ecclesiastical name. And then drawing on his faith in the one God, tested in his lives as Ignatan, 
Mark, Origen, Bodhidharma, and Saladin, Bonaventure became one of the most influential writers and scholars in the history of the Catholic Church. The soul of Lanello demonstrated the expression of the grail light of God through the cultural lens of each of these major religions. Bonaventure's philosophy described a path of holiness that began with faith, that was then integrated with reason and understanding, and then a process of mystical union or identification with God's presence. He held high-ranking teaching positions at important universities and served as the Pope's aide. But, as in previous lives close to the Church, Bonaventure died unexpectedly in 1274 under suspicious circumstances after arranging for the ecumenical union of the Greek and Roman churches. In the following centuries, Bonaventure was venerated as a saint and as a seraphic doctor of the Catholic Church. As I mentioned earlier, we don't know every life Lanello lived, and there may well have been several less prominent, quieter lives that followed Bonaventure, but we do know that 369 years after Bonaventure's mysterious death, he began another lifetime that was anything but anonymous. He entered the world again in 1643 as King Louis XIV of France, the Sun King, then the longest reigning monarch in the history of Europe. His reign was supported by extraordinary wealth and marked by expensive wars, pomp and ceremony, and the commissioning of some of the world's most elegant architecture. The magnificent palace and gardens of Versailles were derived from his sole memory of the architecture on the etheric levels of Venus. There may also have been a sense of unfinished king business from his relatively short lifetime as Clovis, the first king of France. The extravagance of Louis XIV's long reign may have been karmically costly to Lanello's soul because his subsequent lives were never endowed with such wealth and unchecked authority. I think now would be a good time to wind our way back up to the mansion and pause now and then when we find a view through the trees down to this golden river. I can talk as we walk uphill. So, where does a soul decide to serve after a long, regal life like Louis XIV? Well, we have no exact dates for the next two lives that Lanello experienced, but they were both set in much humbler circumstances, as if his soul knew he had to return to more engaged service face-to-face with his people. It was such an extreme about-face, away from anything to do with the wealth of the world, that when he ended life again, it almost seemed calculated to be the complete opposite of the extravagance of Versailles. Around the Great Lakes in North America lived the Iroquois nation, a proud hunting culture that was in disunity and great danger. All we know about Lanello's life as the Iroquois chief Hiawatha came from his sole memory of that time, as remembered in a subsequent life we'll see in a few minutes. As in previous lives, in the Iroquois experience, there was a return to deep engagement with his people, a reasoned and impassioned appeal to them 
to unify against a common threat, the encroachment of American westward expansion. There was also the intimate connection with the Great Spirit and the role of messenger, counselling the setting aside of petty differences in favour of unity and a warning against egotistical pride. But the Iroquois, like those in Camelot, fell into argument, and the union of the people of the Great Lakes was not sustained. The one consolation? Here again, in the Iroquois sunset, there was the presence and comfort of Lanello's twin flame, who, in that life, was known as Minnehaha. They were together again in the next life, but only for a few minutes, also under dire circumstances. We know that this was a humble life, serving the people in France as a traveling priest, sometime in the 1700s. On one of the priest's stops in an unknown French village, he was asked to give last rites to a woman who was very close to death. It was his twin flame. She'd never seen him before in her village, but knew intuitively who he was the moment he bent over her to pray. She'd lived a mundane peasant's life, but as she looked into his eyes, she had an epiphany, realizing she'd fritted away the years she'd been given and could have done much more with her life. Her last words in confession to the priest were actually addressed to God. Oh, opportunity! Oh, God, give me another chance! Let's pause here for a moment and look at the view. Look at the light in that river. Heaven and earth exist on different frequencies on this one planet. You may be wondering how Lanello could have left this beautiful place between lives to go back to the physical for a life where the people were so dense they wouldn't listen to the news that the Holy Grail was an ember, even the fire of God within them. Instead, they would mock, murder, betray, and intrigue against even the noblest efforts to impart the secrets and power of the inner grail. One answer, as we learned from St. Germain, is that the vision and the determination is always to anticipate the golden moments within the long game. Another answer is the vital understanding that no effort, no matter how noble, can produce anything eternal without the sponsorship of the sons and daughters of God who have gone before you. Sponsorship means these masters willingly take on the accumulated weight of lifetimes of your negative karma in return for a lifetime working the works of God for mankind. And then another lifetime and another. The long game is the great bargain of deferring payment on your karma in an extended partnership with the masters. They plan the multidimensional spiritual chess game we can barely glimpse, and they only accept victory. The long-term certainty of victory is why you would leave this paradise for another round of service back in our dangerous and difficult world. We'll go on up through these woods here, and I'll explain the next interesting change of life setting as we walk. Lanello's subsequent chance at life was fully dedicated to teaching and creativity, far more so than the Iroquois leader or the itinerant French priest. 
but there was still no escape from the mortal realities of our world. So sponsorship by a master for a certain lifetime doesn't necessarily mean you're free from pain. The paradox is that pain can be the most attention-grabbing teacher when the soul won't listen to the master's plan for winning. We live on the physical level of a planet known as the crossroads of the galaxies, ground zero for Armageddon. This earth is the battlefield where light will eventually swallow up darkness. The when is up to us. Lanello's soul was born into the United States in 1807 as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, became a college teacher of literature, an abolitionist, and then, unlike so many poets, was appreciated as America's most popular poet while he lived. A friend described him as absolute sweetness, simplicity, and modesty. Many of his poems were derived from historical events or mythology, but one, the Song of Hiawatha, was a journey back into the Akashic records of his own soul memory. And while the poem was among his most commercially successful on the personal level, it was an exploration of the sponsored prophetic gift from an earlier life, a timeless warning to any nation divided by pride, argument, and selfishness. The gentleness and poetic creativity in Longfellow's life would reappear in his final physical embodiment. But as in preceding lives, Longfellow experienced personal tragedy. His first wife died young of a miscarriage. His second wife died of burns when her dress caught fire. His sister died young of tuberculosis. His first daughter died at just over a year old. And his son was seriously wounded during the Civil War. These were devastating events that affected his health and his ability to write. He was concerned at times that he would go insane with grief and that he was, quote, inwardly bleeding to death. For the American public, though, he was theirs, the people's poet, and he died wealthy, celebrated, and surrounded by family at age 75 for a change. This little pond here looks like a good spot to take a break and sit on the benches for a few minutes. That trickle coming through the rocks and bushes is a spring from the hill behind the mansion. Now, to pick up again after Longfellow's passing, Lanello's soul's journey doesn't end there with the outward appearance of success. The pyramid of Lanello's contribution to civilization was not yet complete. An even more demanding opportunity was then offered by God to test the soul of Lanello. The upcoming stakes and holy purpose were far higher than Longfellow's and meant to shape world history for the better. In the planetary picture at the time, there was a spiritual chess game going on between the light in heaven and the darkness confined to our octave. Lanello was to be one of the key representatives of the light in our world at the beginning of the 20th century. He re-entered our world in 1904 as the Tsarevich Alexei Romanov, son of Tsar Nicholas II and heir apparent to the Russian throne. As the potential future ruler of Russia, 
Alexei's God-given mission for that life would have been to succeed his father and bring Russia into alignment with its divine plan for the 20th century. But his father, the Tsar, was an error-prone ruler and was baited, outwitted, and forced by Wall Street-funded Bolshevik revolutionaries to abdicate his throne and Alexei's mission during Russia's military disasters and the Marxist rebellion in World War I. Alexei, aged 13, his four sisters and their royal parents were all kidnapped and murdered by Bolsheviks in 1917. Instead of being able to realize the abundant life through a potential Tsar Alexei, the people of Russia were submerged into the hell of communism for most of the 20th century. Tens of millions of Russians died untimely deaths. To be murdered in cold blood at age 13, to be denied the chance to take on a high-stakes mission for the Russian people of light, along with the soul memories of previous life-ending events, would suggest a soul might opt for a long period of review and healing from the shock here in the Master's retreats in heaven. Not so for the soul of Lanello. He realized that the window for spiritual service through monarchy was now closed in Russia and in the rest of the world. There was great urgency to bring awareness of the grace and abundance available in heaven into physical form before Russia's fate spread worldwide. Mother Mary appearing to children in a field near Fatima in Portugal in 1917 warned about the global consequences of this setback to the light in Russia. Lanello was reborn into the United States just one year later, in 1918, into one of his most humble settings ever, for good reason. It's possible that the masters and angels showed the soul of Lanello the karmic records of mankind over the eons. The records showed then and now the same cunning class of Luciferians who had karmically engineered the cataclysms that destroyed Lemuria and Atlantis, murdered Ignatan and Nefertiti, subverted Sodom and Gomorrah, murdered Aesop, then Origen, crucified Jesus, wrecked Camelot from within, tried to assassinate Saladin and Bonaventure, killed a Russian Tsar, his family, and tens of millions of Russians, and had been destroying or subverting the mission of good people for thousands of years. The global power elite of the wealthiest financiers acted through secret investors in New York, Frankfurt, and London to fund the agents of Bolshevism in Russia and throughout Europe. The Akashic records indicated that the infiltration of embodied Luciferians into every institution in every nation, if not checked, would continue until a new cataclysm, potentially thermonuclear, could suddenly send civilization into another dark age in our time. These worldly elites knew that they were approaching their final judgment, and if they had to go to the second death, they intended to take the planet and everyone with them. The masters we've already visited all knew this equation. 
They also knew God's law that they could not interfere in our physical octave, even to save us from a dark age, because that responsibility still belongs to us. As in biblical times, the masters can only act as advisors and sponsors of prophets like Moses and Isaiah and world teachers like Jesus. And so, in his final embodiment, the soul of Lanello was born into a modest setting in rural Wisconsin in the U.S. as Mark Prophet, a complete unknown, yet with a higher stakes mission than in any previous life. The mastery he'd gained in all the previous lives would be needed in this one. Although he was sponsored by many masters as their messenger, he was not exempted from a requirement to balance a unique burden of karma from those previous lives. During Mark Prophet's teen years, he was working in the Midwest as a railroad laborer laying steel tracks. When the ascended master El Moria, who we met in Darjeeling, appeared in Mark's etheric awareness and offered him the grace of his sponsorship during what was outwardly a period of only a few seconds. Being a devout Christian, Mark rejected the offer as way too far outside his Pentecostal church experience. But some years later, he changed his mind. The mission offered by the Master El Moria, who had lived as Abraham and as King Arthur, involved training at the soul level to take on the same mantle of messenger that was given to Moses for the Ares age and to publish the Master's teachings as a continuity of the Old and New Testaments for the Aquarian Age. Moses had actually etched the teachings of God's grace on the first set of stone tablets. But the Hebrews of that time with their materialist rebellion were clearly unready and unwilling to accept the dispensation of grace. Instead, they got basic karmic law, the Ten Commandments, on the second, lesser set of stone tablets. An age later, the grace of God's forgiveness was taught by Jesus, but he also taught that we would do greater works than him, such as preventing a dark age and establishing a self-transcending golden age, the merging of the etheric with the physical. But how? Who could explain that to materialist 20th century America during the Cold War? The ascended masters, including Jesus, needed two messengers, two witnesses, to speak and publish the answers to these questions on their behalf, and for us to practice their teachings by devotion and service. The office of messenger, as demonstrated by Moses, involves the direct transfer of God's light and teaching without personal interpretation. This, in the 20th century, was in direct opposition to the dominance of the Luciferian elites in church, state, education, and publishing. Publishing became the mission of Mark Prophet, the culmination of many historically famous lives, peaking in a relatively obscure 20th century life. He received the close sponsorship of Mother Mary, Jesus' mother, prompting him in the best use of his time and energy each day to systematically balance every jot and tittle of negative karma possible in the time that was allotted and then extended for him. No surprise, his twin flame found him in 1961 and became his closest assistant and successor messenger for the Masters when he passed on in 1973 with 73% of his karma balanced. 
he was required to balance the remaining, more difficult 27% in the Master's retreats through the ongoing partnership with his twin flame, named Elizabeth in that life. When Mark ascended non-physically, or from the etheric level, he chose a combination of two of his most favored embodiments as a blended thought form, forming his ascended master name, Lanello. The combination of Longfellow's gentle creativity and Lancelot's honor and drive epitomizes the soul of Lanello. And in case you were wondering, Elizabeth ascended, also non-physically, in 2009, with 100% of her karma balanced, proving Jesus' point that greater works could be done, even in the hostile civilization we live in during our waking hours. The works, as you probably know, were in speaking and publishing the Master's words of grace, forgiveness, and illumination for the Aquarian Age. But right now... I get the feeling we should be heading on up to the retreat about now, so let's wind our way through these next few gardens. They're just like fragrant outdoor rooms. If you look around, you might notice some echoes of the gardens of Versailles in our world that in turn are echoes of the gardens of etheric Venus. They'll always be here for meditation on future visits. But now I'm thinking... We have a meeting to attend pretty soon. So as we walk, go over in your mind these last 3,000 years or more of Lanello's physical lives. The story doesn't end here in heaven, happily ever after in the gardens of this retreat. Just as Moses passed the responsibility for establishing God's promised land onto Joshua and the elders of Israel, and Jesus and later saints passed the law of forgiveness onto their disciples, so the torch of Lanello's responsibilities is about to be passed to you. He doesn't have to live in our dangerous world anymore, but you do, and that's why we're going to this meeting. You might ask, how could the responsibility for teaching and publishing something as vast as the wisdom of heaven be given to you when you haven't fully studied it? The answer is to fully study it and to live these holy teachings as a lifestyle. Once you know the teachings of the saints East and West are holy, you embody them in how you think, act, and speak the golden rule. We'll take these stairs up to the balcony, up there. I see we're expected. If you look up, that way, we'll go up onto a second level. There's a terrace with orange trees and honeysuckle vines. And here we are. Can you smell that? Honeysuckle and orange blossoms blending together. And one more terrace, and we'll go into the vestibule, straight ahead. Look at this. Even the walls glow with light. White, gold, blue accents, all luminous. We can go that way, toward the fireplace. Do you recognize any of the portraits? And white carpet, pristine like new. Only in heaven. All right, please join me over here where we'll wait for the master. Here come the brothers of the retreat. These masters will help us later. And here's Lanello, the tall, handsome father wearing his luminous blue cape, obviously happy to see us. He's got the vigor, the square jaw and shoulders of a knight, but his cheery brown eyes are that twinkle that says he can't wait to give us a big hug. It's both a formal moment 
in a moment when it's like, family's here. We're just glad to see him. It's a moment. We've been through a lot. One by one, he holds our hands with a laugh and tears in his eyes. This is Lanello, who's still as fun and quick with jokes as he was in his final life among us. Each of us have known him in multiple previous lives, and so there are a lot of memories between us. For us, the realization of the moment is, by grace, Lanello is immortal, and we're not. Not yet, though the invitation is plain. We've each got specific work to do, and so we settle into the chairs and around the fireplace at his invitation for what could be some kind of an announcement. And then Lanello looks at each of us and begins to speak as to trusted friends. These are his words. How can there be a greater love than the love that is shared by those friends of old who have sat at the feet of the masters together? Ours is a friendship of the ages. God has assigned to me the very special care of the flock of sheep, the devotees who are part of the mandala of the Divine Mother, called the mandala of the 144,000. And so I reveal to you that the work of the two witnesses that is prophesied will not be fulfilled until 144,000 souls have through this teaching ascended into the presence of the I am that I am. You have been our friends down through the ages. We were in Egypt together, and in your memory there is the recollection of Ignatan and Nefertiti, and the vow we made for the resurrection of the land of Afra when thirty-three centuries would have transpired. For we knew then, we who were friends today, we knew the law of reincarnation. Our worship of the Son was the worship of the I Am that I Am. But these facts are not recorded in stone or in the books of history. These facts are recorded in the hearts of those who were and who are our friends. We were together in China and at the court of Arthur. We were together with Jesus our Lord. This group of devotees has been one in the sacred fire of the cultures of the mother on many continents. You vowed to come forth with Sanat Kamara as we did. You must remember then that the body you wear in the physical octave is a coat like the coat of skins that were given to Adam and Eve. But existence is before. Christ is before. The I am is before. The soul then is a being of light, a sphere of white fire with the colorations auric colorations that mark the choices of free will. It is well to identify with the people and the race and the culture of your service. It is well to identify completely, for thereby you better serve God's children. But now and then it is well to remember that you are not of this world, as I was not of this world, that you have come from far-off worlds, that you are natives of eternity, and your allegiance is unto the Lord, your allegiance unto the Son and unto Alpha and Omega will one day free you from the clay mold. But then that clay vessel has a period of usefulness, 
And therefore, in every culture, those whom we call friends have taken embodiment. As I look over the earth, I see my friends from the ancient empire of the Incas, now embodied in South America, some as descendants and others of Germanic, Spanish, or Portuguese origin. I see my friends in the north, in the northernmost parts of Canada and Siberia. I remember when we were together with Confucius. Sometimes it is difficult to understand that the light revolution on earth has been going on for centuries and that always the same band of souls has been responsible for turning the tide of darkness. 144,000 souls of the Mother's Mandala are sufficient to bring the rebirth of Christ's kingdom in every age. Considering that these souls continue to re-embody and do so with an accelerating momentum, you can see how Moria and St. Germain and Mary the Mother and Jesus himself have also been embodied in many cultures in many ages. Could you, if you tried today, name and identify 144,000 leaders of the light revolution of Earth? It would seem that there is a dearth of leadership, and it is not because all are not available, but it is because some who have had the responsibility of leadership due to certain conditions of their karma in these last days have actually rebelled against the position of leader. In succeeding embodiments, they have made karma with those whom they came to deliver. This is your plight also. You have mingled with the cultures that you sought to resurrect, and you find yourself balancing karma with the children of God. Now we call once again to those who are ordained to positions of leadership. The hour has come. The hour has come for you to represent the Mother, the Christ, the two witnesses, and all who have ever gone before, who are now ascended, and who therefore cannot take embodiment again to lead the people. Who will tell them of the Holy Spirit and the Ark of Contact? Who will tell them of the science of the spoken word? Who will tell them of El Moria? Who will tell them that our God is here and now the law, the virtue and the song of sacred vow? Who will come to know the truth and in that truth be the proof that God is law and energy, that God is love, that God is the way out, the word, the logos, which we give in witness of that light, that flame, that friendship? Who will tell them? Who will tell them? Ours is the calling and the cause of the ages in a mission for the elevation of humanity. Ours is a cause that must transcend doctrine and dogma. So let it be. Let the 144,000 who are called in the mandala of the World Mother be free to take the teachings of the Ascended Masters and to bring these teachings wherever there are hearts who are willing to receive them. Let us be up and doing then. Let us know then that the call is to the few and it is to the many that in order to qualify for your own ascension, you must meet the requirements of your karma. Before this gathering, I sat down with the Keeper of the Scrolls to review the record of each live stream who would be here this night. You may think, that you did not know yesterday that you would be here this night, but I tell you, I knew 
and my angels knew that you would be here. And so, I read the record, and I read that which is given to you as an assignment for this incarnation. And there is not one of you who has not been called to contact a certain number of souls in this life, to pass the flame and the teaching. And each one of you agreed before taking embodiment that you would not fail, and that you would not leave this earth until you had found those certain souls. For some, it is fifty. For some, it is five hundred. And for some, five thousand and more. I can assure you that if you call to me and ask me to assist you to contact those souls whom you have pledged to contact, I will help you. I have helped many to fulfill their karma in this age. I will lead you to the faraway places and I will show you that in your very own neighborhood as well as across the continent, you can find the souls that have the mark of Christ in this age. I have come to you this evening to renew a friendship with a reminder, a friendship that will continue forever, even long after we have graduated from this system of worlds, I am certain that our father and our mother will send us for the rescue of other life waves. And even when there are none left to rescue, there will always be the tutoring of new life and new root races in the initiations of the cosmic Christ. With joy, then, let us move hand in hand across the earth and let our circle of oneness span the planet round. Let us be the unity of nations. Let us be those who will form that invincible avant-garde of victory and of light. Now then, I invite you to stay a while, for we would review with each of you your divine plan. Lanello turns and invites the Holy Brothers of the Retreat, each carrying scrolls, to come forward from the back of the room and introduce themselves to us. At their invitation, we move with them to more private seating around the large room. There is a scroll on which we recognize our name, the long scroll in gold lettering of the record of all of our lives. And this is where things get personally interesting for you. The one-on-one -on -one discussions begins with the equivalent of you are here in your live stream. This is what you promised to do in this life, in gold lettering. Ah, yes, I remember. This is what you've accomplished so far. A few minutes ago, we heard a briefing on 18 of the physical lives within an extraordinary but far from perfect life stream. Who is now ascended? If Lanello was as human then as we still are, Consider that your lifetimes over these thousands of years may have followed a similar pattern, prominent in some lives, humbled in the next. Consider also that Jesus and Gautama didn't have the full picture of God's will for their human lives either, and had to navigate each test in life by faith and prayer for understanding and protection. The point of the discussion with our Ascended Mentor is that you have reached a level of soul maturity 
you are here. Where the many lives behind you are prologue, and the most important part of your book of life needs to be finished. In other words, you have a path to your ascension, written on the scroll in front of you, and right next to you, an experienced guide who has already made it, and is showing you that you have a way to go. This is very personal. It's a bit sobering to grasp that immortality is actually possible for you. But it isn't given away lightly. There is a holy process of full identification with the Christ in you. And you and I likely don't yet fully understand what that means. But before you get too introspective, your mentor, like mine, will remind you and me that many of the 144,000 volunteers who came here long ago with Sanat Kamara to rescue the people from the fallen angels are not yet at the point where you are. You are here. They are not. And where are the billions of people on physical earth in terms of their freedom from the risk of another dark age? This shift of focus to the safety and well-being of others is what's on your scroll as well as on mine. The way to go as principle, differing only in the details. It's worth studying your scroll because somehow you're going to have to transfer that intuitive understanding to your waking mind at introspective moments during the coming days. Sincere, thoughtful prayer to God can get you out of the densest part of your waking mind and align your attention with your etheric mind. Ask God to train you. If you're willing to train, each free will decision you make has a better chance of being informed by a flash of intuition about what was and is on that scroll. Your scroll. There's a sense of gravity about the responsibility of knowing what's on our scroll, as well as the joy, the privilege of being here. After all these lifetimes, like Lanello, of seeing through a glass darkly, we can now be more finally focused on the most effective use of our time and service to humanity. With these thoughts of what we're committing to, we thank our mentors for their insights, and they join us out on the terrace, lined with honeysuckle vines and dozens of ornamental orange trees. Lanello is there by the balustrade with his twin flame, who he introduces as Elizabeth, though some of us already know her as well as him. A surge of exhilaration runs through us as we see our blue escort angels approaching over the hills above the Rhine. As with the other masters we've visited, we're expected to return as often as we want, to check how we're doing, and to effectively use the blessings of wisdom and protection we've been given. How long throughout history have we waited and prayed for this feeling of camaraderie, that the team we came with so long ago is gathering again to turn the tide of civilization by the power of love and wisdom. Thank God for our ascended brothers and sisters. We will be sponsored as Lanella was for the long game. And then we're up and on our way with our blue angel back across the mountain ranges and oceans to our sleeping bodies and the challenge 
of the workday coming up in the morning when we wake. We won't consciously remember much, if anything, about the insights we saw on our scroll. But nothing good is lost in our etheric memory, and at the right time and the right place, parts of it will come to mind as the way to go. Before you arrive safely back in bed, I should remind your intuition that the reference source or encyclopedia for each of our tours of heaven is, of course, the Masters and their retreats. You can browse the table of contents, view the world map of the retreats, or buy the book on AscendedMasterSpiritualRetreats.com. Then, if you'd like to get a sense of Lanello's personality and his final embodiment as Mark Prophet, buy the book Creative Thought Forms. These two and other fascinating books can all be found on AscendedMastersSpiritualRetreats.com. Next tour, we're in etheric China again, far above the urban vibration of worldly Tianjin or old Tianjin, Beijing's seaport and one of the largest financial centers in China. But we're not going there to discuss finance. Far back in China's early history, the forested area was once called Heaven's Ford. In this peaceful, etheric retreat, a pagoda by a beautiful river, and in a corresponding retreat in the high Himalayas, we'll go to visit a very warm and personable Buddha, whose name simply means kindness. You'll be surprised at his hidden but leading role in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, and in the spiritual culture of Tibet, Mongolia, Japan, and China. Who could this be? Like Lanello, his soul is unlimited by human boundaries of any sort. Thanks for taking this history-leaping tour with me along the golden rivers and around the retreat at Bingen and into the realization that the team is gathering again with lots of hard-earned experience of what it takes to permanently win this planet for the light. Knowing we're eligible to be sponsored to win the long game, I'm here to say, Always victory. <laughs>